It was October 14, 1992. We were serving at a church, my wife and I, down in Danville, and we took a break. And we found a little bed and breakfast in southwest Virginia, just outside of Abingdon. And we had gone out for dinner on that Wednesday. And we made our way back to the bed and breakfast. And when we got back to the bed and breakfast, uh, we noticed as we were making our way through the, the, the foyer and headed to the stairs, uh, going up to our room for the evening, and there were all these people gathered in the living room. And there was about 12 to 15 people that were gathered in the living room, and they were, they were all kind of staring at this box that had a picture on it and knobs. Um, I think we call those TVs. Not sure. We don't have knobs on TVs anymore. But they were watching something that, that I had totally forgotten that night was actually happening. They were watching the National League Championship Series. And the Atlanta Braves were playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. And as they were watching that game, it was building the excitement because it was the ninth inning and there was two outs. You see, let me set the stage for you on this one. Uh, this series had started and the Atlanta Braves were up three games to one. And nobody comes back from being down three games to one. Now, I know on a percentage basis, it's happened a little bit, but it just doesn't happen. So the Braves were confident. I, the, all the fans were excited. Victory's coming. We're going to the World Series. But something happened and it turned around and, and, and victory or, or defeat was snatched out of the jaws of victory when the Pittsburgh Pirates won the next two games. And then we came to game seven on October 14, 1992. We got through all of the innings. The Pittsburgh Pirates scored a run in the first inning. The Pittsburgh Pirates scored another run in the sixth inning. We get to the ninth inning and the Atlanta Braves are down two, get, two runs to nothing. And this is when my wife and I came back. We came back and as we came back, the Atlanta Braves had just scored two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning. And now there were two outs and there was a guy on second base. His name was Sid Breen. Sid Breen played from 1983 to 1994. And after he finished with the Braves, he went on for just a year with, with the uh, Houston Astros. But in 1992, we were so grateful that the Pittsburgh Pirates had traded him to us. <laughs> and now he's playing against them and he was on second base. Now, Sid's knees weren't known for speed. Sid was a great first baseman, outstanding baseball player, wonderful leader, still is today. And he is on second base. But there was a really famous baseball player that stepped to the plate. This is a, uh, this is a Louisville slugger, Ash Wood Bat. This is classic. I mean, this is, this is just basic Major League Baseball tradition right here. This, this bat was built in Louisville, Kentucky, and I bought it from another store outside of Louisville, Kentucky. But this guy that everybody knows was Francisco Cabrera. Now, I know some of you in here, you're not sports fans. Maybe you are, but you're still thinking, who is Francisco Cabrera? Exactly. No one really knew who he was. True, Braves fans knew who he was. But other than that, no one knew who Francisco really was. Francisco stepped to the plate, and as he stepped to the plate, he threw that bat on an outside breaking ball and made contact, base hit into outfield. It was two outs, so Sid Bream, as soon as that ball made contact with that bat, he took off running. He ran, and he ran, and everybody was wondering, how in the world is he ever going to get home? He trucked home, and there's the picture of, the, of, of how it finished right here. This autographed picture of Sid Bream, number 12, came across home plate and the umpire gave this sign. And if you know anything about baseball, you know this sign means safe. He scored the run, Atlanta wins game seven, and then goes on to the World Series to lose to the Toronto Blue Jays. Well, that's not part of my story. <laughs> we get humbled all the time. How in the world did Sid Bream find the energy, find the, the, the motivation and the drive and, and somehow find the speed to score that run. It's one thing. He was headed 
home. I love baseball. I love that baseball has a story that in order for you to, to, to score, you have to go home. Our, our safest places are where we find home. And this morning, we're in Revelation 19 and 20, and the story is just that. We are headed home. This is what God has given us. In Psalm 90 and verse 1, the Psalm of Moses, it says, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. Beloved, our story is better than a baseball game. Amen? It's far greater than the competition on the field or in a stadium. Our story is so much better. And that's what we find right here this morning in Revelation 19 and 20. And as you find your place this morning in, that, in, in your Bibles, on your devices, or on page 68 of your notes that we've been using throughout, throughout this series, um, I just want to remind us how amazing this journey has been for the last two months. And it started like this. This journey has been a journey through what we know to be the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And it's given us a much deeper and more thorough understanding of things which must shortly take place. The timeline of this, this journey over the last two months is on the screen behind me. And I'm not going to go through all of it this morning because we have covered a lot of ground. But know this, we started with Jesus. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to him so that John could record it and show us all the things that must take place. And we started with Jesus. It was on a high note. It was on a note of encouragement to the churches. And then we spent the bulk of our time going through some things that are just very troubling and difficult. But I'm here to tell you this morning, we turn the page to Revelation chapter 19 this morning. And Jesus has already stepped out and called his children. And now Jesus is coming to set things right. This morning, we see the second coming of Jesus and we see the final judgment because Jesus has overcome. All the things that we've been reading from chapter four all the way through 18, Jesus has overcome. We're gonna see this morning exactly what he has overcome. And this morning, I'm gonna start back in chapter 18 where we were last week. Pastor Matt helped us get an accurate picture of Babylon, uh, the, the great city and system. You see, that city and that system has ravaged God's people since the earliest days of civilization. To be finally rid of this promiscuous religious and economic oppression when all seemed hopeless. Are these words that you can identify with? to have situations in life. And some of the things that we face are because of our own inadequacies or failures. Some of them are because of the inadequacies and failures of people around us that bring these pains and these hurt to our lives. When all seems hopeless, to be finally rid of this, this promiscuous religious and economic oppression, this must lead all of God's people to one response and one response only, and that is to worship the Lord God Almighty louder than any stadium, including October 14, 1992. We should have a resounding response to what God is doing and what he's showing us because Jesus has overcome. Join me as we look back and start in verse 21 of chapter 18. Here's what we read. Then a mighty angel took up a stone and like a great millstone threw it into the sea. That would be Babylon. Thus with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman or any craft will be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of the lamp shall not be shine in you anymore. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, and by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all of all who were slain on the earth. Chapter 19, verse one. After these things, John records that he heard a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true 
and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her blood of her servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise God, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both great and small. Father, as we read your word this morning, may you speak. May you clearly speak to our hearts and we know that your words are true. They don't change, they are without error and they point towards one thing and one thing only, the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Beloved, I want you to know one thing this morning about Revelation. I want you to remember that Revelation has one main point. Sometimes I think about that one main point. I wonder why do we have a book and we're taking all these notes? Because we need to study. We need to understand so that we can accurately proclaim that one main point in every situation we find ourselves in. And that one main point is this, Christ wins. That is the main point of the book of Revelation. It's actually the storyline that started in Genesis when we saw the failure in Genesis three of his creation, when they were deceived by the serpent. Well, in these, in these chapters this morning, the serpent is going to be put aside and finally destroyed because Christ wins. You see, at the end of chapter 18, we get to see the finality and destruction of Babylon, the city and the system, but our king has, has overcome and he has overcome and he is our overcomer who triumphs over all. So we should not be surprised that when we read the end of chapter 18 and we start into chapter 19, we should not be surprised that John heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. It's like this cosmic divine second runner from second base that crosses home plate when we thought it was all over. They see this happening in Revelation 18. And so the, the echoes of heaven, the only thing that can happen is for them to erupt in praise, not because they didn't think it was gonna happen, but because they always knew and now it has. Should not be surprised. I love that line in the song that David Crowder sings, come as you are, that says this, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Beloved, the sorrow of earth that had lasted for centuries, even millennia, was cured by heaven through a mighty angel's decisive toss that ended Babylon, period. That's why we read that, that there's an alleluia for her, the smoke smolders and will forever and ever. That's because it will never be rebuilt. That's why the testimony says about Babylon, I have ended this. You will no longer have marriages. There'll be no celebrations. There'll be no concerts. There'll be no trade. There'll be, there's nothing because it is done. Jesus has overcome and it is done. Whatever may have been going on in heaven at that moment, it all turned to roaring praise. When Babylon, the great city was thrown into the sea like a great millstone, never to be heard or seen again. And that is where we pick up this morning. We pick up with these words, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor belong to the Lord our God. This morning we celebrate because our King is returning. Jesus has overcome. The roar of praise in these opening verses indicate that the King has overcome. My prayer for us this morning is that we see just what the King has overcome. What has King Jesus overcome? Let's, let's, let's look at three things this morning. Jesus has overcome first our past. In Revelation 19 verses one through five, as I've, I've just given you the, the account, Babylon has been destroyed, never to return again. And the response of heaven, uh, their great multitude is Alleluia. The literal translation of the word Alleluia is praise Yahweh. Yahweh is a personal name for God. And those who know him personally can use the name Yahweh. It's very personal. And when you know Yahweh and that he has provided and now he has overcome your past, your only response is to give him praise. 
Babylon represents such a large historical and painful memory of Israel's past. And beloved, I know that every single person in here has things in your past that represent pain and hurt and unanswered questions and solutions. Israel had dealt with this for centuries, but their God Yahweh has overcome that past completely. So their response is deeply personal. Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. In all our struggling, through difficulties, through decisions, we can respond the same as the 24 elders and the four living creatures did in the throne room of heaven. And that is with amen, alleluia. When that praise goes out, we can say amen, which means yes, I agree, that is exactly right. And alleluia, praise Yahweh, because the God who is personal has now overcome my past. They echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 106, Verse 48 that says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. Jesus overcomes our past. And in verses 19, all the way down through 10, there's a process of him overcoming our past. We celebrate what he's done to destroy what has been in the back, in the background in years before. But then he moves forward and in overcoming our past, he now gives us a new name. You know what happens when people get married. Someone changes their name, right? Now I know that there's celebrities and people want to keep their name because they make money on their name. And I, I, you know, in the home, I'll keep my, I'll change my last name, but when it's in public, I'm going to keep the last name because it's beneficial. But, but you understand the theology behind what it means for a marriage to come together, that a name will change. And part of Jesus overcoming our past is the official ceremony to represent the changing of who we are that has already happened in the past. Because Jesus, in overcoming our past, he receives his bride. In verses 6 through 10, we read these words. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. That's us, the church. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linens, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Paul would say, does it really matter if we do what is righteous and what is not righteous since sin covers all of it and God forgives? Paul called that ridiculous. I would resound his sentiment. It's ridiculous because Revelation says that we are clothed in fine and clean linen, which is the righteous works of the saints. The righteous works have to be those works that ultimately give glory to him. We serve and we live and we interact and we have conversation as unto the Lord because it glorifies his name. Those are the righteous acts. It's not because we do them. It's because who we do them for. Then he said to me, right. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. <laughs> and, and, and we see this verse here in verse 10. And John says this, and I fell at his feet to worship him. This was the messenger. But he said to me, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Two words, worship God. Don't worship anyone else, worship God. Fall on your face before God. Don't fall on your face before the National League Championship Series. Don't fall on your face because you just purchased the car that you've always wanted since you were six. I've got one of those. I don't own it yet, but I, I have one. Don't worship God because now you have the home that you want and you fall on your knees before that home. Don't worship that job that you secured that you've been hoping and praying for and now you've got it and you fall. No, when those responses come in, when these testimonies that are true come from God, you fall and you worship God and God alone. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, the question comes back, who is at this wedding? And I'll tell you this, we just sang a song that gives us a testimony of who is at this wedding. When Jesus steps out, and he calls his children. You see, that's a biblical truth come, that comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. 
It's what we know as the rapture of the saints, the rapture of the church. Now here in Revelation, we don't see where that transpires here in Revelation 19. What we're seeing in Revelation 19 is that the church has been gathered and raptured out of, out of this place. In fact, 1 Thessalonians tells us that when he steps out and calls us, that the dead who are in Christ will go up first. And then it says those who remain will then be caught up to meet them, which means for everybody on the first floor, you should sit in the balcony because if it happens today, you get everybody in the balcony gets a head start, right? They, get a, they, they, they can get there. People get here early every Sunday to find your seat you want, right? Well, if you want the right seat when you get caught up in the rapture, you should probably start sitting in the balcony on Sundays. I'm just kidding. All my friends in the balcony up there, because that's where we sit on those Sundays. Not because of 1 Thessalonians 4. <laughs> but that's who is at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the church, the body of Christ from right now. We've been gathered together. We are actually part of the, the multitude that is there in heaven that responds to seeing Babylon, that great city and that great system that is destroyed as Jesus overcomes the past for his people. In Genesis, the pinnacle of creation was marriage. In these final days, as we're watching this, this series come to an end, the series, by the way, comes to an end. The story is still moving forward. We've covered the whole story. We're living in part of this story that has, and there's more that hasn't happened yet that we've talked about in this series. But in these final days, the marriage of the lamb and his bride is to be the focal point of the marriage of heaven and of earth themselves. And Babylon, that symbolic equivalent of the ancient Babel, which thought to climb up to heaven by its own energy, is shown up as a futile parody of the real thing. Babel was a human attempt to get by sheer greed what God proposed to give by sheer grace. Did you catch that? That's what happens when John responds to the messenger and he wants to worship. This information is overwhelming. So he wants to kneel and he wants to worship the person delivering the message instead of the one who is the message. Worship God alone. Babel sought to get grandeur and accolade and, and, and have victory for themselves, to lay hold of something that God said in my plan and in my, in my time. I started something back in Genesis 3. And I was working a plan for you, citizens of Babel, to provide something just by the, my grace. You know what grace is? It's when we receive that which we could never attain through the power and the generosity of a loving God. When he gives us that which we don't deserve. N.T. Wright describes it this way. He says, for a man to know and a woman to come together in marriage, whether they know it or not, is to plant a signpost which says, God's creation is wonderful. God's purposes for it are not over. His plan is going ahead, and listen to this, and we are part of it. Every marriage couple, every couple that comes down the middle aisle of this, this room to enter the covenant of marriage or maybe over in Pate Chapel or over on Thomas Road at Pate Chapel or maybe in our prayer chapel on the campus of Liberty University or, or maybe whatever farm that you have your wedding in because very few do it in a church now. We all want to go to a farm and I would please and beg all couples getting married, don't do the farm uh, during the hottest season of July and August and September especially when you line us up to stare at the sun while you're giving your vows. And it's just a pastor's plea right there. We get to be part of it. Every marriage that comes together is a signpost of what is coming and what we're reading about right here in Revelation chapter 19, verses six through 10. There's a powerful phrase, though, at the end of this passage, at the end of these verses, uh, in verse 10, there's this statement that is made. If you see it there in verse 10, it says this, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And some would say, wow, that's a, man, that's a, that's a mystery. Man, what a statement. It's not as complicated as you think it is. See, the reality is that the true intention or the spirit of all biblical prophecy has always been and always will be to point us to Jesus. 
Go throughout this book. You go throughout this book and you start looking, especially go back to Isaiah, go to Daniel, and you start reading through the prophets and everything they say about what will happen, all the imagery and the, and the forecasting of how nations will come together and how things will change and how people will suffer, but how deliverance will come and how God's plan will come about. Every prophecy speaks to Jesus. That's why John records that the spirit of prophecy is Jesus. That's what it's all about. It has always been about him. John MacArthur says the central theme of the Old Testament prophecy and New Testament preaching is the Lord Jesus Christ. And until the coming of his kingdom, all who proclaim the gospel, that's everybody in this room. You see, we proclaim the gospel here on Sunday morning. Every person that ever teaches God's word or preaches from God's word on Sunday morning in this church will give opportunity for the gospel to be understood and for those to respond, both believers who need to repent as well as unbelievers who need to receive. But it's also everybody sitting in every seat that you're sitting in here this morning. We, the church, are responsible for the story of the gospel being lived out, being, being demonstrated to our neighbors, to a community, when you give to a, 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 maybe a, a, an elementary school where there's a classroom that has needs and you say, hey, my grandchild is in that school, I'll, I'll help with whatever's needed there. That's not you doing something for your grandchild, that's doing something for the kingdom and for the gospel. Because there may be a day because of that generosity where you have, where you have lavished on someone out of kindness the way that God has demonstrated his kindness to us that led us to repentance may lead you to a conversation that you get to share about the hope that is within you. All who proclaim the gospel must be faithful to the testimony of Jesus, the saving gospel. You know why? That was his message. That's what he taught us. Beloved, it has always been about him. Jesus overcomes our past. But as we continue in chapter 19 and verse 11, we see also that Jesus overcomes our present, our today. Our yesterday, he overcame. Our today, he overcame. As we start in verse 11, we read these words. John said this, and what a great way to start. Now I saw heaven open. Listen, don't miss those words. Heaven is open because heaven is coming to earth to bring to closure, to overcome. John says, now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He doesn't even count on there's so many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name was called the word of God. Say, Pastor, isn't that the Bible? Yes. You see, these are words that have been printed so you and I can study, so we can know them, so we can not just know these words, but so that we can know the word of God, who is Jesus. Remember, everything points to him. Verse 14 says, and the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And I love this last verse in verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ed Heinsohn says of this passage, this singular vignette of Christ's return in Revelation 19, 11 through 16 is the most dramatic passage in all of the Bible. There's a lot of dramatic passages in the Bible, but I would say I would rank this passage right here, right up there with the most dramatic passages in all of scripture. Verses 11 through 16 give this amazing description of what is happening because our king has returned and he has overcome. In these six verses, we are swept into the triumphal entourage of redeemed saints as they ride in the heavenly procession with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
in this one passage alone, all the hopes and dreams of every believer are finally and fully realized. This is not Palm Sunday where he's riding in a procession coming on a donkey with such humility. It's not the same thing. This is the ultimate in the end time drama. The rejected savior returns in triumph as the king who is rightfully the king of all the world. Jesus overcomes our present. You see, our daily struggle, our daily stewardship is accompanied with our daily struggle. We have a stewardship as believers every single day. You and I have a stewardship. We also have a daily struggle. This is why we can encourage one another because we all struggle with the same things. Maybe not at the same time, but we have a stewardship that accompanies our daily struggle. Our stewardship is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. And that is our lives ultimately are to do everything that we do to the glory of God. Everything. It's always about his name. But we also have a responsibility in our struggles to do what, what Paul describes in his own personal testimony. He describes in Romans 7 verses 7 through 25. He says things like, you know, all the things I really want to do, ah, I turn around on Friday and I have not done hardly any of them. All the things I know I'm not supposed to do, I turn around on Monday morning and I get through the weekend and I did too many of those. Paul, Paul's not just trying to commiserate with us in the sense that says, hey, you're going to fail. It's okay. No, he's saying there is a fight against my flesh every single day. And the fight against my flesh is wrapped up in this cosmic battle that we are giving testimony to as we work through the book of Revelation. Because it all stems from Genesis chapter three and Satan and the serpent himself, that great deceiver who works hard on us every single day. We have this stewardship to live our lives and what we do to give glory to God. And we have this daily task struggling through, fighting our flesh every single day. If we lose in that battle, we don't accomplish the stewardship of the glory of his name. So when Jesus sets things right here in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, he hasn't just conquered the enemies. He's now conquered your present day struggle because the, the conquering of these enemies, they represent the struggle that you and I have every single day to fight our flesh. And because of that, we're seeing in Revelation this finality of, of the end of that struggle against the flesh. Jesus has overcome our past, but Jesus has definitely overcome our present. And he does this in these, in these first few verses, 11 through 13. He begins this overcoming of our present by defending his name. We see these seven descriptions of, of our warrior Messiah here in just three verses. Things like he's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire. On his head are many crowns. No one knows his, his name. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is now called the word of God. This is for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. This is why he overcomes and he overcomes our present. His glory, we see in verses 14 through 16, his glory comes with an army. There ain't nobody else's glory that comes with an army. Oh, there's been human armies and armies among men of the earth for decades and centuries and millennium. But there is no army because there is no God like our God. There is no army that comes for the glory of God's name. We live as under the Lord for his glory. Beloved, he doesn't need you to defend his name. I think sometimes we think he does. We think he needs us to step back and go argue with, with others to debate this group over here because we need to defend his name. No, here's what we need to do. We need to wake up every single day and we need to focus our lives on the glory that he gets when we live as unto the Lord and the victory that we get to see because of him getting glory as we fight against our flesh. If we would focus on those two things, we would see transformation all around us because we would be living out the gospel. 
His name would be lifted up and he would draw others to him. And we would fight together as we struggle with the, 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 the desires of the flesh that Paul talks about in Romans chapter seven. He defends his name. But as he overcomes our present, he also defeats his enemies. We see this in verse 17, where we read these words. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both great and small. John says that I saw a beast in the, and the kings of the earth and their armies, and they gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 20 says, then the beast was captured. Did you catch that? The army gets assembled in verse 19. In verse 20, the beast is captured. The beast is captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped in his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. He wraps up this paragraph and says, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now I know in this room, just reading those words, there's many minds and folks in this room that are going, what in the world? God is calling the birds to come eat the flesh of those that have been defeated. I would step back and say, let's step back a little bit further. In verse 17, John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. Now, as you read Revelation, you, you can underline so many things that you would underline so you can make a note and say, I wanna find out what that means. And I will tell you, in this series through Revelation, we are not covering every one of those I wonder what that means statements. But this is one that I think is very important because Jesus has overcome. That's our message this morning. He's overcome our past and he's overcome our present. And as we read verse 17, John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. Robert Mounts describes this as a position of splendor appropriate to herald a victory. Now I hope you're tracking through here in Revelation 19 and specifically in this paragraph, because in this paragraph, we start in verse 17 and there has been no battle. Yet there is an angel standing in the sun that is heralding a victory to a battle that has yet to begin. Not only is he heralding a victory to a battle that has yet to begin, but he also calls and says, all the birds, go ahead and make your way to the battlefield because it's about to begin and end just like that. Because beloved, don't miss this. Jesus has overcome. When he steps into this arena, it's not to test his ability to carry on this battle. When he steps into this arena, it's not to make sure that all the forces and all the flanking that needs to happen for the battle plans actually are executed appropriately because there is one battle plan and there's one outcome to all of this for you and for me as our overcomer overcomes our past and overcomes our presence. And, and it is this, Christ will win. Christ has won. We step into this fight every single day. And as we step into this fight every single day, we should not enter this struggle with our own flesh, hoping we succeed or hoping we get through this. Listen, don't miss this. He has already won. He has overcome. Those who are in Christ, we don't, we don't wake up every day wondering, are we gonna be okay? No, in this life, you will have trouble. Jesus assured us of that. But I have overcome the world, he said. You're not only fighting for a team that has a winning record, you're fighting, you're a part of a family of Jesus Christ that has already overcome and he has already won. He overcomes now, today. This is what we see unfolding in this passage. That's why there's an angel standing in the sun saying, it's over, dude. You can assemble whatever armies you want. I'm done with this. I am finishing this battle. The victory is pronounced way before the battle ever begins. He summons those birds. Uh, Grant Osborne says, this message is gruesome and powerful, guaranteeing before the battle has ever been joined that the end result is certain. So the battle begins, but it's a one-sided battle because the beast comes with all the kings of the earth and all their armies to fight against Jesus, the rider who is the rider, not a rider, the rider on the white horse. 
And immediately the beast is captured and all of his band of evil warriors are defeated and along with the false prophet thrown into the lake of the fire. Now listen, I'm not gonna get unpack this in detail this morning, but anytime you see lake of fire, that is the end. There's no story after that where those who are thrown into the lake of fire are somehow pulled out of that. That is it. The beast and the false prophet, it says right here, are thrown and cast into the lake of fire. Jesus overcomes our past and Jesus overcomes our presence. He defends his name. He defeats his enemies. Our struggle is no more, but his glory is eternal. So our response doesn't change when he overcomes our present. Our response should be the same that we read right here in verse five in Revelation chapter 19 that says, praise our God, all you serve his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. That's the response of those who are the recipients of the overcomer, our King, Jesus Christ alone. I think through this second coming of Jesus as described in such detail and in somewhat graphic terms. And then I consider the first time Jesus came. And I want you to think about this. Uh, There's a chart and it shows how we can see the difference between his first coming and his second coming. The first time he came, he rode on a donkey. The second time he came, he came as a suffering servant. First time he came, he came in humility and meekness. He came to suffer the wrath of God for sinners. He was rejected by many as the Messiah. The first time he came, he came to seek and save the lost. The first time he came, he came as God incognito. He came and he wrapped himself in flesh. But the second time, the second time he comes, right here in Revelation 19, he will ride on a white horse. He will come as king and Lord. He will continue in majesty and power. He will come to establish the kingdom of God for his saints. He will be recognized by all as Lord. He will come to judge and rule as king and praise his name. He will come as God in all of his splendor that the world has never seen. Jesus overcomes our present. But then finally this morning, we turn the page to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, we begin to see the story begins to account of how Jesus overcomes our future. Jesus has overcome our past. He overcomes our present. But now the story gets even better. And this is where the fun and the joy and the relief and all the solutions and the crying stops because he overcomes our future. He's going to do that by establishing his kingdom, bringing an end to evil and establishing ultimate justice. Let's read starting in verse one, the first three verses. John says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. What great imagery. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Beloved, let me just say this. If Jesus had not already overcome our future, we are to be pitied. We are wasting our time. We've missed it. Somehow we figured out and what we thought was true isn't true. If Jesus hasn't already overcome our future, but he has, our future will be a daily struggle with the flesh until Revelation 20 begins. Until the end of Revelation 19 is concluded when the beast is is put away. But at the beginning of Revelation 20, we see Satan himself subdued. And here's what we see. Before this millennium begins, we see Satan being bound. The purpose of this is not for his punishment. The purpose of what God is doing here is not for the punishment of Satan. That's coming later. The purpose of this being bound is for his confinement so that he cannot deceive the nations. There are so many things that are happening here and it's hard to keep track 
Pastor Jonathan, over the, over the last two months, has done a great job of helping us see how the population of the planet begins to dwindle through the storyline of Revelation, especially as we get to the Great Tribulation and, and proceed further. Where now we're, we're seeing, uh, at best, maybe a third of the current world's population still exists when we get to this point in Revelation. But there still are those who have made it through the great tribulation. There are those who did not take the mark of the beast, but yet they still haven't yielded to the, to the king of kings and lord of lords. There are people that are still part of the, the, the world system and they've made their way through all of this. And there's also people who have, who have persevered and have come to the, to the king, have acknowledged him. And as we come to this place, there are still people who have not yet turned to Jesus. And so as the millennium begins, God says, I'm going to take Satan and I'm going to throw him in a bottomless pit and I'm putting a cap over the top of it. Almost, a, almost like a stone over a grave. Except that God is the only one who's going to put it on there and he's the only one who's going to lift it off. And he does this not just for his punishment, but so that he can limit and prevent him from deceiving these nations. But listen to this. His binding is complete. Anything God does is complete. In verse 2 of chapter 20, we see this. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Every name that he is called throughout scripture is covered right here in verse 2. And he, and he lays hold of him for a thousand years. All four titles by which Satan is designated, and that's one of them in Revelation, are brought together here in this verse. He is the dragon defeated in heavenly combat by Michael in chapter 12. He is the serpent who tried to sweep away the messianic community with a flood in chapter 12 and verse 15. And the devil who knows that his time is short in chapter 12 and verse 12. During the millennium, the messianic kingdom will be freed from the devil's deception so it can flourish. You see, having the messianic kingdom, when I say that, the messi Jesus's people, the chosen people of God who are still here on this planet, the messianic kingdom on earth is a vindication of God's creative activity. This is the only place in all of scripture that discusses what we know to be the doctrine of the millennium. It's the only spot. And it's usually the one thing when we get to Revelation 20 that people want to ask questions about, people want to discuss. And as we get here in these first few verses of Revelation chapter 20, we begin to ask these questions. What is meant by millennium? Well, it comes from the Latin words, two Latin words, mille, M-I-L-L-E, which means million. And it comes from the second word, which is annus, A-N-N-U-S, which is the year or one million years. And historically throughout the church, there have been three predominant understandings, views, or adoptions of a view. And they are this, one is called premillennialism. And that equals the time of Christ's return to be prior to the millennium. Now, as we've been reading, we've seen exactly that happen. The second view is what we call post-millennialism, and that, that, that comes from those who believe the time of Christ's return. What we read in Revelation 19, they believe that comes after the millennium. You can do the math. Then there's a third view that's called ah-millennialism, which is equal to having no millennial reign of Christ at all. And that his second coming, when he comes, ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. Beloved, let me say this. Although it may be debated and discussed, and sometimes that can be helpful, at other times it is quite the opposite. This is not a doctrine that we need to divide over, although it is essential in environments of close fellowship, such as members of a local church, or a network or a denomination of churches where alignment is critical for effective collaboration. But let me say this, what we read in this chapter, right here in chapter 20, coupled with chapter 19, offers the strongest support for a pre-millennial position. It's the view that best honors a normal, historical, even a grammatical interpretation while still recognizing the prophetic and apocalyptic literature that we're covering right here in the book of Revelation. It balances it. And there's three key reasons that I would share that I think help us with that. It's in your notes on your app as well. But number one is this, 
Go with me on this, right? This is technical. Revelation 19 comes before Revelation 20. I know I'm, I, 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 you know, I serve at Liberty and I teach theology. And so I don't want to, I don't want to make it more complicated than it is. Revelation 19 comes before Revelation 20. Are we in agreement with that? Yeah, absolutely. By the way, your Bible has chapters and verses. When this was recorded, there were no chapters and verses. So the content from Revelation 19 came before the content in Revelation 20. You know what that tells us? It tells us that his coming, when he comes, sets things right, it happens before he binds Satan and then opens up to the millennium and then releases Satan after a thousand years. That helps us understand that a premillennial position is a stronger position. Second, the word millennium is used six times in seven verses here in Revelation chapter 20. And the reason I say that that's evidence for a premillennial position is this. Every time, every place in scripture that the word year is used with a specific number, it is literal. When you use the word year with a specific number, anywhere in scripture, go read them. It is a literal number. It's not, it's not figurative. It's not metaphorical. It doesn't, it's not symbolic. Anytime throughout scripture, the word year and a specific number, it's always literal. Six times it's used here in seven verses. Third, both resurrections that are listed in the passage following that we're getting ready to read in verses four through seven, both resurrections are physical bodily resurrections. You say, why does that matter? Because there are real people living in a real millennium and and, and following Christ through all of this. But we cannot miss this. This is not just about the kingdom that is to come. His kingdom is now. It's also not yet. So why must Satan be released for a little while? That's another question that everyone wants to ask. Scripture says after that, he must be released for a little while. Why must he be released for a little while? This is why, this is what I'm completely sure of. 100% sure of. I am 100% sure of the explanation of that question. The Bible doesn't give us a specific reason of his release. I am 100% sure of that. But this does make sense in view of what we call a theme of theodicy that is at work in Revelation chapter 20 and actually in this room here this morning. Now, I, I, I apologize. I know that I just dropped a term that is very unfamiliar for almost all of us in this room, but it is a simple yet powerful description of what God is doing in this story. The term theodicy. It's a combination of two words that come from the Greek word theos, which means God, and the Greek word dike, which means justice. In other words, we we are in in an economy and living through a a season and a life that that God's divine justice has a full-on plan that is being lived out. What started with the fall in Genesis 3 is now coming to a finality in Revelation chapter 20. You see, we've got to see this. I mentioned this when we talked about the two beasts. You've got to see the big picture that started in Revelation 3 that now is coming to culmination and finality in Revelation 20. And we'll see even more finality next week with Pastor Jonathan in chapters 20 and 22, 21 and 22. What, what is God doing in the world around us? The overall picture of God's justice, having allowed sin to come to its predetermined end. Grant Osborne says the divine must means God has determined it necessary that he be freed for a final brief period. It's not that God is forced to let him out. It's that there are those who have yet to come to Jesus and Jesus has never strong armed anyone into salvation. And there are those living on the planet and he will release the deceiver for a short period of time because everyone has to make a decision for yourself. It's what we understand is the free will of the believer. And he will be released for a short period of time. For a thousand years, those among the nations who worship the beast will be under Jesus' sovereign control and ruled by the saints. They will not experience Satan or be deceived in any way by him. All they will experience is the benign rule of Jesus Christ himself 
In other words, verse three and verses seven through 10 are the divine must of a just God. He overcomes our future. And as he overcomes our future, he establishes his kingdom. But he also overcomes our future and he establishes, I'm sorry, I think I messed up the notes. Yeah, he establishes his kingdom. As he establishes his kingdom, we read in verses four through six, join with me. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the, world of, for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. The first, this is the first resurrection. Check this out, verse six. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Beloved, Jesus overcomes our future. John doesn't tell us much about what the activity during the millennium, but he does tell us two things that he sees. First, he sees thrones. We don't know who's sitting on these thrones that John sees, but what we know as we look back in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, that there, it says the 12 apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 3, we see that the believers will judge angels. In Revelation 2 and verse 6, the saints will have authority over the nations. In chapter 5 and verse 10 of Revelation, the followers of the Lamb will reign on earth, it says. John also sees resurrected martyrs from the tribulation. He calls this the first resurrection. It is the first resurrection after the tribulation. The reunion of the church has already occurred. We've celebrated the marriage feast of the lamb. Who is this second resurrection for? Here's what we can know. We can know that those who died not believing will be raised after the millennium. Revelation never uses the term second resurrection. He just says, this is the first one. Everybody else who's died won't come back until after the millennium. But John gives us this uh, beautiful summary of the destiny of the redeemed, of those who are the recipients of Jesus overcoming our future, the destiny of the redeemed, of those who follow the lamb. It is the fifth beatitude of Revelation. It says, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. We are blessed, we are holy, We are happy and we are set apart. The second death has no power over us. We are also brought into being priests of God and Christ serving through the millennial reign. And we will reign with him for a thousand years. He will establish his kingdom. And then finally, he will bring evil to an end. Verse seven through 10, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will release from his prison be released and he will go out to deceive the nations which are the, in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as of the sands of the sea. We've already talked about this army in weeks prior. They will come over the Euphrates River that will be dried up. Then they went up on the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And there they would be tormented day and night. Listen, there are five aspects of the scene that are important. One is the release of Satan, his deception and gathering, his battle surrounding God's people, the fire descending from heaven that devours the nations and the casting of Satan into the lake of fire. In four verses, it all comes to an end for evil. And he brings evil to its final end. And then we celebrate with the final verses of chapter 20 because he establishes ultimate justice in verses 11 through 15. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose faith faced the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw dead, small and great standing before God and the books were opened, and another book was opened which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. 
The sea gave up the dead who were in it and the death in Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death that we escape. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's so many questions that could be asked about this passage. One is who stands before the great white throne? My answer would be everyone who is judged at the great white throne. Only those who did not receive Christ, whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of the life. For all of us whose name is found in the book of life, we've already received a judgment and been, been given an account at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But who, what are these books? One, there's two books. One recorded all the deeds of every person that has lived. One records the names of those who received the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, Jesus overcomes our past. Jesus overcomes our present. And Jesus overcomes our future. He writes our name in a book. Not so he won't forget, but because our relationship is deeply personal. Praise Yahweh. For he has overcome. He's established his kingdom. He brings evil to an end and brings ultimate justice. Jesus has overcome. Let's pray together. This morning, there's a great opportunity. We talk about Jesus, this the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that he has overcome. He's overcome our past. He's overcome our present. He's overcome our future. There's two opportunities for every single person in this room this morning. One, come to him in repentance. Find his presence afresh and anew this morning. Believer in God. Two, come begin that relationship. Come find yourself under the cross where he overcame our past. He overcame our present and he overcame our future. Whatever your struggle is this morning, our team will be down front. We have so many folks that are eager to pray with you. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, my past is huge. My response would be, I don't doubt it. Every one of us in this room could write a list a mile long and a thousand miles high. But Jesus has overcome. Jesus is calling you to him. Listen, Jesus is calling you home. Our ultimate destiny from the beginning of this, this story that started in Genesis was to get home and to be home because he is our home. Whatever God is telling you this morning, why don't you respond to him? close us in prayer. I want to invite everybody to stand. As we leave this morning, team that's down front will be here waiting. They're eager to pray with you. But don't miss what God is doing in our midst in Revelation 19 and 20. He has overcome. Jesus is in your presence that we that we find ourselves humbled with only one response. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Father, I pray that you would have your will in your way, that you would reach out to the hearts that need to know you this morning and know the overcomer. And for those of us that know you, that have been riddled with this fight against our flesh, who desperately need to come to you in repentance and 
and sit with the one who has overcome our present. God, thank you for the victory. Thank you that you win. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll see you next week. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition in your life of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask Him to save you today. If you would like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we would love to chat with you about that. I would encourage you to email us at the address that is on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. And if you would like to help to contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love. To let them know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, that he rose again. And through Christ, we have hope.